From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We are reporting this week from Colorado Springs, where the population's growing, so is traffic and housing costs. I think there's, you know, a real character of the city that in some ways is shifting. And it depends on who you talk to, whether that is good or bad. What hurdles are ahead for Olympic City, USA? And what's the finish line look like? Then what we're learning as coronavirus spreads. I'm joined by a doctor at one of the nation's leading respiratory hospitals here in Colorado. Plus, my Sunday morning call with a presidential candidate who by day's end wasn't one. All right. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I've got it. And the story of black homesteaders near Manzanola. It is not in the historic record for Colorado. My passion is to help people know. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs, and welcome to our new listeners on KRCC across southern Colorado. This weekend proved to be a busy one news-wise. Coronavirus continues to spread. Coming up, an expert from one of the country's leading respiratory hospitals, which is right here in Colorado. Also, of course, big news in politics, including the end of Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. I wound up being one of the last journalists to interview him before the announcement. That, too, is ahead. But first, I got into Colorado Springs on Saturday for an important date. You could say the same for Judy Brown. I'm getting married today here at Garden of the Gods. You're getting married at Garden of the Gods. Do you need a permit for that? No. You can just get married here. You can. They say if it's short and sweet and not too big or anything, it's good. Now, here's what worries me. You're in a gorgeous white (laughs) dress with these shimmering white shoes. I don't know how well that's going to mix with the red soil. I'm going to be very careful. (laughs) (laughs) Have you given this thought? Yes, yes. I was here yesterday, so. (laughs) Why did you decide to get married here, and why did you decide to get married today? Well, today's the 29th of February, so, you know, leap year, so that'll be fun. But Garden of the Gods, it's beautiful. Why wouldn't you? It's hard to have a wedding anniversary on a leap year. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah, you've given that some thought, I imagine. Yeah, my husband says he only has to buy me one gift every four years. (laughs) I say he has to get me two gifts, you know, the 28th and the first of every year. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) How long have you lived in Colorado Springs? 12 years. Yeah. What what brought you here? My soon-to-be husband. He was born and raised here. Ah, and what do you think of the place? (laughs) I love this. It's gorgeous. Who could not love it waking up and looking at these mountains every day? Brown told me she works at a credit union that carries the name of a former Air Force base in town, Ent, but she's not who I came to meet at Garden of the Gods on a traffic-y weekend. Andrea, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. This is Andrea Chalfin. She's managing editor at KRCC and a longtime Colorado Springs journalist. And Andrea, we asked you to choose a place in the Springs that represents where the city is right now. Why did you decide to take us to Garden of the Gods, and in particular, this spot? Well, we are in Garden of the Gods. It's an iconic park. It's an iconic city park. But what I really wanted to bring you here for is actually what's not in this spot. What's not in this spot? We are in the High Point Overlook. We can see Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak is glimmering above us. It is glimmering. What's not here, though, is a large blue frame. 
A large blue frame. A large blue frame. A couple years ago, the city installed a large blue frame, and uh, it was positioned in such a way that if you looked through it at a certain angle, it would perfectly frame Pikes Peak. The city put it up. A few days later, there was a logo that was attached. It included a hashtag for Olympic City USA. And then a few days later, it came down. It came down. It seems like the sort of perfect Instagrammable scene that they were trying to create. But it's also this inflection point for some of the tensions that are happening with this growth in Colorado Springs. It is important to note, I want to make sure that we we note that even before Garden of the Gods was established, uh, it was a sacred space for Native American tribes, particularly Utes. And the sign came down because people were just up in arms at the idea of adding this sort of man-made tourist thing to their sacred park, sacred in many ways, as you've said. Right. You know, the, the people criticized the city. A lot of people criticized the city for what, in essence, they said was ruining a natural landscape and also for kind of being out of touch. And, and I think the city really just wanted to embrace a new vision as it moves forward. And, you know, there was a tourist here that I spoke to at the time, and even she, though, said that it seemed a little bit unnecessary. And that's still attention today, do you think? I I do think so. Being Olympic City USA is, you know, the city has really embraced it. We've got the Olympic uh, Training Center here. We've got the U.S. Olympic Committee here. But I think that people sort of see that as an outside group. And what is it that we here can embrace as a city uh, that is more natural? I've been looking at the growth rate of Colorado Springs and El Paso County. It's been growing as fast as Colorado as a whole, 30% roughly in the last decade. You see that in housing costs, in rental costs, you must experience it in traffic. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, there's traffic all the time through the major arteries of the city. And um, it's been interesting to watch the growth and to adjust to it as it comes. And is it good and bad? Is it a mixed bag for you, Andrea? As someone who's been here how many years? I've been here for 12 years now. 12 years. I guess it just depends on what your priorities are. I think there's, you know, a real character of the city that um, in some ways is shifting. And uh, it depends on who you talk to, whether that is good or bad. The reality is, is it's happening. I mean, we've even seen it this morning, the traffic right here at Garden of the Gods. Yeah, you know, the city is actually really grappling with traffic flows here. There was a study that was released last year that said from 2013 and 2016, traffic through Garden of the Gods increased by 82% and even approached or exceeded 2 million visitors. The city has introduced shuttles. The city has tried to do what are called motorless mornings where no motorized uh, vehicles are allowed. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah, and I mean, just imagine being here in this park with no vehicles. I find that hard to imagine as a Jeep passes us. So we're going to take a minute to imagine this place full of nature. And, you know, when giving speeches or presentations, Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers, he, he often invokes the well-known Western writer Wallace Stegner. We're and going to be speaking with Southers later this week. Excellent. Uh, but he, he always says um, he wants to create a society to match its scenery. And I think that when you think about things like traffic through Garden of the Gods or you think about things like the blue frame, you, you have to think about it in terms of um, Mayor Southers and the vision that he is trying to promote as well with this society to match its scenery. Where do those two things come together? Besides the wedding and the runners and the hikers and the drivers, is there a place you think we could go to see the growth that we've been talking about? 
Yeah, I've got an idea. Let's go. I'm not sure where we're headed, Andrea, but we've just gone over a bridge, I think over I-25, in which all of the cars were diverted to the left and oncoming traffic was to the right. It was like we were in London. Well, uh, we are known as Little London. You are? Yeah. We'll have to look up why that is. Uh, what was going on with that bridge? Uh, that bridge is relatively new and it's called a diamond design and um, they say it's supposed to help with the flow of traffic. Okay. Okay, so I've looked this up just to get my facts straight. Uh, Little London was the nickname to Colorado Springs because there were so many people of British descent. At one point, one in every five residents was of British descent. A lot of the money that William Palmer, uh, General Palmer, raised to develop both Colorado Springs and the Denver and the Rio Grande Railroad came from English investors. Ha! After wending our way across town, we drive into a park, up a hill, and walk to a promontory overlooking the city. Well, we're on the opposite side of town. I can see Garden of the Gods across the way. Where have you brought us? Well, I have brought you to Palmer Park, which is named after General Palmer, the city's founder. Um, as you can see, we're at a big overlook of a lot of the city. I mean, down there is Cheyenne Mountain, Pikes Peak over here. You see that white dome down there? Yeah. That is the velodrome, which is where cyclists train for the Olympics. That's right near the uh, U.S. Olympic Training Center. And I probably live right down there. This is also the wildland urban interface, it occurs to me. You've got homes amongst the forest. And we know that fire has been an issue here. Right. I mean, if you think about the fire, uh, Waldo Canyon fire, for example, burned a lot of the area up there. Uh, that's to the north of Pikes Peak. But we are clearly on the other side of I-25. Um, but we are still, because of the vegetation, because of the topography, we are definitely part of the wildland urban interface here in Colorado Springs. And there's housing and, you know, I think what some would call sprawl, as far as the eye can see, Andrea. Mm -hmm. There is, Colorado Springs does have quite a bit of sprawl. I don't really think that that's unique to the city, but it is something that is causing some issues in terms of uh, infrastructure keep up. As you look here, this is the main part of the city. The downtown is right down there. But if you turn around. Yeah. Oh my, okay, right. just hills and hills of growth. Right, right, right. And over here is going to be your Shriver Air Force Base and Peterson Air Force Base. You can't really see it from here, from the park, from this overlook. Um, up north and northeast is where a lot of the growth is happening. And all of that is part of Colorado Springs proper. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's that a lot of city mm -hmm. to maintain. It's a lot of city to maintain when you're talking about infrastructure or public safety. I think one of the tacks the city is trying to do is a lot of infill, build up, not out. But out is happening. It has happened, certainly. Thanks, Andrea, so much for talking. You're welcome. Thank you. Andrea Chalfin is managing editor of KRCC, which is now part of the Colorado Public Radio Network. Tomorrow, a tour of downtown Colorado Springs, which is undergoing a transformation. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce will be our guide. What better way to help kind of revitalize a part of your downtown than to drop a world destination museum right in the middle of it? That's tomorrow.
coronavirus led the organizers of a massive global conference in Denver to cancel the event. Some 11,000 people were supposed to attend a gathering of the American Physical Society starting today, but they called it off due to, quote, rapidly escalating developments. Every day, heck, every hour, it seems, there's something new to report about this novel virus, COVID-19. Let's get a reset, what we know and what we don't. Dr. Ken Lin Q is a pulmonary critical care physician at National Jewish Health in Denver. It's one of the country's leading respiratory hospitals. And doctor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So over the weekend, the Trump administration announced travel advisories, warning against going to certain countries. But we know there are cases on U.S. soil of patients who have not traveled abroad, nor did they knowingly have contact with coronavirus patients. What does this say about the way coronavirus spreads? Like, is it possible people get the virus and may never realize it? Absolutely. So... We know that coronaviruses are encountered every day, not this particular virus, but the other coronaviruses, and we have a different name for them when we get them, and that's the common cold. We know some people, when they get a cold, they just get a little sniffly nose, they will have, you know, a little bit of a headache, some sinus congestion, and a lot of people just don't have any symptoms with it. We know that there are people who have contracted this particular coronavirus and been completely asymptomatic and been proven to have the virus. So it is very possible that it is spreading from person to person. A lot of people have zero symptoms, and it's only when it encounters the right person that they get really sick. Is it possible that this coronavirus is in Colorado as we speak in just the way that you described? It's possible. It's really hard to tell. I think that Mm -hmm. we've had the advantage of the Chinese being really aggressive at trying to contain the virus, which has slowed its spread, which will allow us to all be more prepared for when it comes. And it's hard to say if it's already here and people are just passing it off as the cold and we've been fortunate not to see anybody really sick with it or if it just hasn't made it here yet. How, how long can the virus live on a surface? You know, there are a lot of people buying a lot of hand sanitizer and Lysol wipes these days. Um, how virulent and how long is it virulent? Yeah, that's a good question. So these large viruses like coronavirus, they have an envelope around that helps give them a little bit of protection, but also makes them very susceptible to break down in the environment. So there are reports that some viruses such as this can last quite a while, like a few days in the environment, but it also takes like perfect environmental conditions. So Washing hands, wiping things down will very quickly break this virus down, and sometimes it only lasts minutes on a surface. So it's very hard to say for this particular virus, depending on the surface, the temperature, the humidity, how much was sneezed or coughed out. All those things factor into how long it'll last. Uh, So we do know then that some coronavirus cases are not severe. And I have to think that that means our current understanding of its death toll is perhaps out of proportion. Is that true? Absolutely. There's some estimates that coming out of China that half to two-thirds of the people who have the virus have not been identified, which tells us that the mortality of the virus won't be as bad because those people would all filter into the denominator of cases, not the number of deaths. 
And I think some of the estimates we see coming out of Seattle based on what we're starting to see, the Seattle area, I should say, to be specifically, yeah. suggest that this virus has been circulating and it's not until this weekend that we've identified two deaths from the virus. So even if you were to guess one or two other people died and we didn't identify them, the number of people that would have had to have had it to, for this to be spreading around like it is in Seattle's probably quite large. Some estimates I've seen have said 1,500 cases. So if you figure that 1,500 cases divided by two, you start to get this very small mortality rate that kind of fits with what we're estimating out of China. Nine News reports that CDPHE, the state health department, essentially has started testing for coronavirus. Who should get tested? At what point should someone get tested? Why is testing important? Testing is important for several reasons. Number one, we want to identify people who are at risk for progression of the disease. So if we don't know who you are, we can't identify you to say to watch you. The other reason to identify it is to slow the spread of the virus. So one of the big things that came out of the World Health Organization last week was an announcement that they still think we can control this. I think the cat is out of the bag, but by what they mean by that is... We have sick people out in the, you know, so an example would be the or the respiratory patients that come to our clinics at National Jewish. We and these ha- this happens all around the country at all of our academic centers, our you know general practitioners offices. We have sick people that come in, and we want to protect those people from getting the virus as well. So if we can identify people who have the virus, and we can you know, isolate them while they're sicker, get them to wear a mask while they're spreading virus so that they don't spread it. Because that's really the way that a mask works is to keep people from spreading the virus, not to keep you from catching it. Mm. Then we can suddenly try to control this, protect people, you know, in from getting it in the first place, especially our yeah, most just- vulnerable people. I want to say that on Saturday, the U.S. Surgeon General tweeted, seriously, people, stop buying masks. They are not effective in preventing the general public from catching coronavirus. But if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. And just to pick up on what you were saying there, doctor, the idea is you are taking care of your own health, but you're also thinking about the community's health. That's Dr. Ken Lin Q. He's a pulmonary critical care physician at National Jewish Health in Denver. A story now about how quickly things move in politics. I got up Sunday morning at my hotel in Colorado Springs to record an interview over the phone. All right. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I've got it. Great. Uh, We'll dive right in. So let me start by saying, Pete Buttigieg, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me on. The former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and now former Democratic presidential candidate, rang in after a disappointing performance in South Carolina. He finished fourth, taking no delegates. So the natural first question was to ask if his campaign, and thus our interview, had any sort of shelf life. Are you in this through Super Tuesday? We are uh, pushing ahead and feel great about the campaign organization we built Uh, across all of the Super Tuesday states and uh, look into the future. 
Listening to that now, I hear just how evasive it was, but I pressed on. We talked about Vice President Joe Biden's win in South Carolina, which Buttigieg called formidable. We discussed coronavirus, gun control, a few other topics, and then we hung up. I spent a good chunk of Sunday editing, and at about 4.15, the emails and texts and tweets and alerts started coming. Pete Buttigieg was dropping out of the presidential race. At which point, Allison Friedman Phillips of Denver tweeted, Ryan, you must have been one of the last journos to talk with him before he dropped out. Can't wait to hear your take. Well, Allison, I'd love to have really been in his head Sunday morning. Did he know then? Was he vacillating? Or did some call come in afterwards and change his mind? I can't know for sure, but I can share one more bit of tape. This is an exchange following up on his last campaign event in Colorado a week ago. When you were in Aurora, a nine-year-old sought your advice in coming out, and the crowd cheered, love is love, as he joined you on stage. As a candidate who is openly gay, does your campaign feel a responsibility to a child like that afterwards? Is there, is there some follow-up? Is there something that goes beyond that campaign event? Well, uh, one of the best things about this uh, campaign experience has been connecting and, and making uh, lasting relationships with many of the people that we encounter and uh, have different moments with on the trail. And so uh, we look forward to uh, continuing to hear from uh, the young man who uh, spoke up that night and continue to uh, just be lifted up by the stories of different people uh, of all generations who we encounter on the trail, whether it's those who have been impacted by uh, the nature of this campaign and what it has meant for LGBTQ Americans or those who have connected with our story in some other way. Is there a way that you try to make sure that a moment like that isn't just a moment for the cameras, I guess I'm saying? Well, yes, and of course it depends on the individual. But we love the relationships that are formed, and some people who have had interactions like that on uh, you know, on a rope line over the summer wind up becoming uh, very much part of the heart of the campaign in, uh, in countless ways. Thanks so much for your time. Sure thing. Great being with you. Thank you. That is Pete Buttigieg, former Democratic presidential candidate, speaking with me Sunday before he dropped out of the race. So what happens if you voted for him? Well, you're out of luck. As Colorado's Secretary of State Jenner Griswold tweeted just after the Buttigieg news broke, if you turned in a ballot for a candidate who is no longer in the race, you cannot vote again. She did add that this is an example of why they are looking into ranked choice voting and alternative voting methods. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with The Dry, a community of African-American homesteaders that lived east of Pueblo. That's in Colorado Wonders, where we answer your questions about the state. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Public radio is flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News. KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio. With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms. And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and KRCC. See the details at CPR.org. Now the story of black homesteaders in southeastern Colorado. This is prompted by a question from our audience. This is Carolyn Sanders. I live in Pueblo, Colorado. 
I grew up in Rocky Ford, and I had heard of a place called The Dry. I was wondering about that for Colorado Wonders. We found two people who can tell us a lot about this. Retired school teacher Alice McDonald of Manzanola, Colorado, grew up on a family homestead in the area known as The Dry. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. We also have historical archaeologist Michelle Slaughter with us who has done field work in this area. Thanks for being with us, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Alice, your grandmother's family came to the area. This is about an hour east of Pueblo near Manzanola. Around 1912, what is the land like? Well, the land is very flat and very dry. It's buffalo grass, lots of cactus, no trees. You can stand and see for 100 miles. What do you feel when you're out there? Well, it's a joyful place to be. There's always a nice, cool breeze blowing. And if you stand still and listen, you can hear the bugs rustling in the grass. If you look about, you can see a snake maybe sliding along. Rabbits get under the cactus in the shade. And if you are real quiet and look very carefully, you can see a herd of antelope once in a while. Maybe there will be 11 or 12 in the group. Why did your family choose it? As a place to homestead. I mean, a a place that arid, you know? They didn't realize it was that arid. There were two women who came with uh, George Swink. Uh, Oh, wait, George George Swink is the namesake of the town of Swink, I'm guessing. Yes, he is. And also, uh, he spent a lot of time in Rocky Ford, Colorado. Okay, so a name well-known in southeastern Colorado. Yes, it is. Continue your story, Alice. These two women came with his family when they came to Colorado. And these two uh, women were black. And they were black. Uh, the Rucker sisters. So he had told them they needed to go and find other blacks to come and homestead in Colorado, and they could own a piece of land. He said, you know, so many of them, their families came from slavery, and they came into Missouri and into Kansas, and they were working as sharecroppers. They didn't own any land, and most of them did want land. So when the sisters came and told them about Colorado They told them that it was a wonderful place to be and that the soil was rich and just ready for farming. And that's all they knew how to do was farm. So So, was that a lie? Was that misleading them to lure them west? No. George was a visionary and he had an irrigation system. So when he told them to go and bring the homesteaders in, he had this in mind However, when the homesteaders arrived, they did not have the irrigation system, and all that they could see was this flat, dry land. And, of course, they were used to trees and plains and streams, and they were quite disheartened. Now, George Swink himself was not African-American. No, he wasn't. Just to be clear, your family coming west, were they freed slaves? Yes, my grandmother's mother and father were freed slaves. It is always... Uh, important for me to hear how recent, how close slavery is. It might be something we read in history books, but it's really not that far away from us. No, it isn't. It is not. Michelle, you did a project surveying homesteads at The Dry. How many homesteads were there in this area? We think that there were roughly 50 families out there. And with the Enlarged Homesteading Act, which was for land exactly like the dry, um, land that wasn't easily irrigated, it gave them the option to 
have quite a lot of land out there. Did it feel like a close-knit community, Alice? It was a close-knit community because they chose for it to be. Now, as far as the homes were, they were some distance apart. But once the people arrived, they needed to help one another, and they needed to relate to one another. So that brought the closeness. Was there such a thing as town in the dry? No, there was not. The intention was to have a town site, and they did have a one-room school. So, like, is there a remnant of the old schoolhouse? What could I see if I were there today? Not a lot. Um, The school has been reduced to a a pile of lumber, but a lot of the homesteads have foundations left, uh, stock tanks and places where you might have had a chicken coop or where you would have had horses and cattle. So the cisterns where the rattlesnakes like to live. (laughs) Um, We we learned to kind of give the cisterns wide berth while we were out there. To someone who's not an archaeologist, it doesn't look like a lot. But Mm. if you go out there, especially with someone like Alice, who knew what it looked like when all the buildings were standing, it just comes alive and, and it all makes sense. You've been out there together? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. They were looking for pieces of glass and items that normal people would just walk over, but they were picking them up and they were looking at the lay of the land and they were able to determine where the outhouse had been or where the coal bin had been. Do I have it right that you unearthed toys? Yes, we did. And that is mm-hmm. one of my favorite things to find. Um, my favorite was a Roy Rogers Sheriff's badge. <laughs> that we found on Alice's parents' homestead. Finding something like that really gives you this very tangible connection to that child who was out there. Was that your sheriff's badge? No, okay. it could have been my brother's <laughs> badge or it could have been my son's badge. Our children would come back and visit with mom and dad. So your family stayed in the drive for how long? My grandmother and two of my aunts were on the drive until... Probably uh, 83 or 84. Okay, so quite yes. quite recently. That was our immediate family, and they were the only ones who did stay that long. I know they built a dam. They built that dam, and it was ready for watering in 1921. And there was a gentleman next to my grandmother who planted a field of wheat. And so they decided, well, they had the dam full. They opened the head gates and let the water come down through the canal and irrigated this wheat field. And it was quite a thing. Everybody came. All of the people that lived on the dry gathered to see this first irrigation of this wheat field. That would have been a big deal, a reason to celebrate. It was a big deal. However, in 1923, they had the huge flood, and it rained and rained for days and days, and they had filled the dam up to the top. So, of course, with all of the rainwater, it washed it out. And That was the end of the irrigation system. It was very disheartening for everyone, and they never rebuilt it. And from that point on, the people began to drift away because they realized that they were not going to be able to farm. I think that I'm probably the last original drylander living. Okay, the dry. I mean, my guess would be it's called that because it was so naturally dry. Yes. Is that why we call it the dry? Yes, that's why we call it the dry. And people would ask the homesteaders, where do you live? And they would say, south of Manzanola, out on the dry land. (sighs) And eventually they would say, where do you live? South of Manzanola, on the dry. Then eventually, where do you live? Out on the dry. 
so it became dry. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And thanks to a question we got through Colorado Wonders, we're talking about the dry. This was a community of African-American homesteaders in the early 1900s in southeastern Colorado, not far from the town of Manzanola. And joining us is someone who grew up on the dry. That's Alice McDonald. Also, archaeologist Michelle Slaughter, who is unlocking some of the secrets. To what extent was this also an escape from racism and the dangers that black folks faced in an America that was still quite hostile to them? I, I think this is very interesting. I'm going to let Alice speak to this, but my expectations going out there were sort of unfounded. I anticipated that there might have been quite a bit of strife between uh, the white ranchers, people in Manzanola, and then the folks at the dry. But it seems like that really wasn't an issue, even though Manzanola had a KKK chapter. And Alice can speak to that. She has yeah, but that a, was a surprise then for you, Michelle. It was a big surprise. So, so, Alice, speak to those relations, would you? Uh, no, there, there was no strife. There was no racism. The people that came to the dry uh, depended on the white farmers. And they were glad that they had come because they knew they knew how to farm and they knew they were willing to work. Oh. And so it was a mutual society, if you may. Kind of a symbiosis. Yeah. Yes. And they worked for the farmers. The farmers helped them out. And racism simply was not a problem. It was not a problem the entire time that I lived there and went to school. It is not now. They did have a, a clan, and it was very interesting. Uh, my father had gone to town and had stayed into the evening. And on his way home, his car broke down. And so he couldn't get it started. He said, well, I'll just get out and walk home. But as he walked along, he had stopped at a couple of the farmer's houses where he had worked, and he knew them, to ask them to help him. There was no one at home, so he walked on. And as he walked further out onto the dry, he could see a glow. And uh, he thought, well, what is that? <gasps> He came over the hill, and there were a large group of men on horseback with their uh, robes and their hoods and their flares, and that was the glow of the light that he could see. And so Dad kept on walking, and one of the fellows on horseback rode up to him, and he said, Harv, what's the matter? Can I help you? And Dad said, oh, my car broke down, and he said, I couldn't get it started, and I stopped at a couple of houses. Nobody was at home. So he said, I decided I would walk home. And he said, well, I'm out here for this little meeting. He said, go ahead home. But he said, don't walk back. I'll come and pick you up in the morning and take you to your car and get it started. And Dad said, okay. Well, he recognized the man's voice. And another one rode up and said, who is that? And he said, oh, it's Harv. And he said, does he need help? And he said, I told him I would help him tomorrow, not to worry. Your dad was having a conversation with a hooded member of the Klan. Yes. And knew who it was, but he never said the man's name. They did not bother the uh, homesteaders, and they just existed as far as we were concerned. I'm very grateful that your father didn't face danger that night. I'm also mystified as to why the Klan would have allowed that to happen. Because they were not there because the blacks had moved in the community. That wasn't They obviously had been there. They had existed before the... uh, group came out on the dry. Well, they certainly did. You know, there was a large group of Klansmen in Colorado. Yeah. Huh. Okay. 
Well, that, that just underscores your surprise, too, then, Michelle, I guess. Exactly. Historically, that's not what you would expect. Mm-hmm. It's as if history is complicated, folks. It's so complicated. Uh, <laughs> uh, so did you farm as a kid? Do you remember having chores, Alice? We didn't farm. The only thing that you could raise on dry land was Indian corn, maybe, if you had uh, good snow and it rained in the spring. I remember they had they had a field of pinto beans because everybody went out and picked beans and and we had a, a nice herd of dairy cattle and we milked them and we sold the cream at the creamery. So of course we had chores. We had to milk the cows. We had to herd them out to the grass. We had to ride out in the evening when we came from school and herd them in so we could milk them again. We had pigs. We had chickens. One year my mother raised turkeys, so we helped her raise her turkeys. And every single solitary day we hauled water. We hauled water in the morning and put it into the stock tank. We hauled water in the evening and put it into the stock tank because the cattle had to drink. Mm -hmm. If I put you in front of a cow today, could you milk it? Oh, certainly. Is that like riding a bike? You just don't forget how to do it? No, you don't. (laughs) Here's something I don't quite understand. You're, You're building all of these farmhouses, presumably. I know that initially when people moved into areas on the plains to homestead, it wasn't even homes. It was like dugouts. But where would wood have come from for homes? What would you have built with? Well, when they originally came, there was no wood. And that was one of the things that disturbed them because when they arrived on the dry, all they saw was cactus. But those who came in the fall knew that they had to have someplace to stay. The people who came from Nicodemus, Kansas, homestead in Colorado. It was another African-American community. Yes, it was. They had lived in dugouts, so they knew that was what they were going to have to do to survive in Colorado. Michelle, just describe a dugout. It's literally what it sounds like, you know, digging into the earth and and making yourself a a dwelling. Yeah, it's like a hole in the ground, almost literally. Exactly. Yeah. It is. My mother's father, when they came... They stopped at the Ruckus Sisters, and they had a dugout. And so they told him, well, you know, there's no wood to build a house right now, so you'll have to make a dugout. And he said, I am not making a dugout. I'm not a rabbit, and I'm not <laughs> living in a hole. So they never had a dugout. He went into town and found some wood and built two little rooms for his family because he just was not going to live in a dugout. But in other words, any wood had to be brought in. Any wood had to be brought in, yes. I'm just trying to picture what life would have been like in a dugout. It wasn't bad, they tell me. I've never lived in one, but... I mean, I guess uh, it would have been cooler, right? Because it's subterranean. It was cool in the summer, and it was very warm in the winter. Growing up as a child, there was an older woman who lived, oh, two or three miles from us. She did not have transportation, and my mother would take her to town when we would go to do her shopping, grocery shopping. And she still lived in her dugout and was there when she died. She had built three rooms above ground, but she had a, her dugout was still there. We loved going there as children, but she had swept the ground until it was hard like concrete. So the floor was nice. Like, yeah, it was almost like she had polished it. Yes, it polished was polished. It, it, was, it was lovely. Alice, do you miss it? I'm still near enough now where I live. I live in Manzanola, so yeah. if I want to go out, I you just, go out. I just go. And she still yes. still owns the land. And we still own the land. You drive out there sometimes and uh-huh. just sit or what? 
just drive out and walk around. My son loves going, and he likes to do running. And he'll call and say, well, I've been out to the dry. Mm. And sometimes we'll just drive out. And if we've had a good rain or if we've had a big snow, why, we'll go out. And it's a wonderful place to go when it's snowed. You can what, why is look that? Because it's just a mass of white, just as far as you can see. It's, mm. it's white. And then, of course, you see the Twin Peaks and the Sangrees back. It's beautiful. In the distance. Yeah. Yes. Do you feel the presence of your family there still? Well, their presence has to be there. They spend a lot of their time there, a lot of energy there, a lot of uh, life was spent there. And yes. I think if you mentioned the dry, and maybe I'm just saying this as a Denverite, Alice, but I think if you mentioned the dry to 10 people, 11 of them would never have heard of it. Do you, do you think that it's a community that has largely been either forgotten or, or like has flown under the radar? You know, there are people that live right there in the Arkansas Valley. When Michelle and her group came and they did the study, there were people who came from Rocky Ford and from Lahana and from uh, the Crowley County Corridor, and they said, you know, I've never been out here. I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know this was out here. And they're right there. I don't have to come to Denver to find people who don't know. <laughs> and that was one of the motivators for me with this project is it is just not in the historic record for Colorado. You know, folks just don't, don't know. know. And so my passion is to help people know. So thank you for having us because oh my this is goodness. A, a great way to get the story Okay, out. usually that's my job <laughs> to say thank you for being here. But th- thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Retired teacher Alice McDonald of Manzanola grew up in an area known as the Dry in southeastern Colorado. Historical archaeologist Michelle Slaughter conducts research in the area. They helped us answer a question we got through Colorado Wonders. What do you wonder about in this state? Send us your questions, cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Before we go today, let's answer some questions you might have. What is Colorado Public Radio, and what are they doing with KRCC? I'm joined by Kevin Dale, executive editor of CPR News. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Ryan. And Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Hi, Stuart. Hello, Ryan. Let's talk about the extent to which the identity of KRCC, the feeling that it's a part of Southern Colorado, how much that will persist as opposed to being like a Denver repeater. You know, I mean, I think that's probably the fear of folks in this region. Yeah. And that's what's really unique about this approach, that certainly one approach would be the same programming everywhere. But the idea here is people trust the people they know. And by having KRCC voices continue to make that connection to produce and deliver the news and programming and then have access to all of CPR's news as well. So when you're listening to to Morning Edition on KRCC, you'll continue to hear uh, what you hear today, but you'll also have access to statewide news uh, from the CPR news team. I just want to say that it's been fun to research the history of KRCC. Its roots go back to the 1940s and a drama teacher at Colorado College who used it at first as a training ground for performers. Kevin Dale, you lead CPR News. 
in planning this week of coverage from Colorado Springs, you know, we've already been working with the talented team here at KRCC. We heard from News Director Andrea Chalfin earlier in the program. Are there areas of coverage you hope to expand in this part of the state? Yeah, I mean, Southern Colorado has been important to CPR for a long time. It's one of the two areas where we have uh, reporters based out, or one of the three areas now, where we have reporters based outside of the metro area. That's Dan Boyce. And our goal in Southern Colorado was to um, beef up our military coverage, was to cover the economic differences of Southern Colorado and the culture, too. Now, teaming up with KRCC, that gives us even more resources to dig into that. So what we hope to do is to make CPR's statewide content available to KRCC while also helping to build their capacity to better tell the stories of Colorado Springs and Southern Colorado. And it also strikes me that they may be telling stories in Southern Colorado that we want to amplify statewide Absolutely. as well. That's, there's no doubt about that. In fact, we're already doing it. So Already doing it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm late to that party. <laughs> you know, CPR News has certainly grown very fast over the years. You mentioned the expansion geographically. So you're making reference there to a reporter who's based in Grand Junction as well, Stina Sieg, and the reporter we have in Washington, D.C., Caitlin Kim. Can you talk about why that expansion has happened in general? Well, because I think Coloradans demand it. Um, they want more news and uh, their support of CPR shows that. And through that support, we've been able to build our own capacity to be uh, more urgent in the news and to preserve and grow and deepen our in-depth reporting, investigative reporting. Stuart, where's the money coming from for this? Was this a purchase and how is CPR and thus KRCC now funded? Just shed a little light there. Sure. So it, it's not a purchase. It's a partnership with Colorado College and KRCC for CPR to take on the operational responsibility for uh, the stations. The, the bedrock support for all of public radio are listeners and local businesses who sponsor what we do. The capital investments that we'll be making into KRCC to replace and upgrade equipment and to build out the public media center that KRCC will be the anchor of, along with Rocky Mountain PBS and the Journalism Institute of Colorado College. Yeah, let that, me just say that this KRCC will be moving out of the house that it has occupied for many years on the CC campus, which, though incredibly charming, lacks yeah. a certain amount of technological prowess. And space. I and mean, space. It's, it's literally run out of, of space in um, that very, very charming house. A new facility will, will be built on Tejon Street, just right on the edge of campus. And that is being funded by CPR's Opportunity Fund, uh, the source of which is mostly estate gifts that have been bequested to CPR. And we'll use those funds to build out the new facility that KRCC will anchor. Oh, wow. Stuart, along with Colorado Matters at 9 a.m. on KRCC, what are some of the other new programs coming to the lineup here? The schedule from 4 a.m. to 7 p.m. will be aligned between CPR News and KRCC. It'll continue to be locally hosted. When you come across Monument and tune into 91.5, you'll hear the same national program that you were listening to, uh, maybe out of Denver, but it'll be locally hosted on KRCC. 
this wasn't that hard to do because we, between the two services, we aired most of the same shows mm-hmm. just at different times. Morning edition and, and all right, things considered right. being and, the kind of anchors. Yeah. And so we just, we, we aligned them so that CPR changed some of its schedule, KRCC changed some of its schedule. Uh, but there's also some additions. The additions are Colorado Matters, which you're hearing now, uh, but also the very popular program Science Friday will join the KRCC schedule this Friday from 1 to 3. Uh, for CPR listeners, I think they'll be very pleased that Fresh Air uh, rejoins the midday schedule on CPR to air at the same time that it's airing on KRCC. Okay, what stories do you have about Southern Colorado in your own lives before we go? In my lighter days, I used to uh, compete and ride the Rockies every year, the the week-long bike ride that the Denver yeah. Post sponsors. And I can remember three times going through southern Colorado around Walsenburg and Alamosa. And one of the most glorious days I ever had on a bike coming down Wolf Creek Pass and, uh, you know, at like 50 miles an hour was fun. And one of the worst days where the wind was blowing <laughs> about 50 miles an hour out there, too. Stuart, southern Colorado? You know, it's kind of similar. I mean— when I was living and running marathons in Austin, Texas, it was always my desire to do the bar trail race along the Manitou incline. I thought, oh, you know, we'll just go up there and show up on a Friday and race it on Sunday or something. <laughs> now that I've been there, never will I do <laughs> that race. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Stuart Vanderwilt is president and CEO of Colorado Public Radio. Kevin Dale is executive editor of CPR News. And from KRCC in Colorado Springs, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. 